Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 139, Medieval Education and Cultural Stratification. For most of the Welsh population living day-to-day, education was something very different from what it would be the norm today. Schools were few and far between. Education was generally run by the church, and typically the average male person, because let's be honest, males were typically the ones who were educated in this period, learned a job, not an education. A large part of the experience in living in this period, a large portion of the experience of day-to-day living growing up from ancient Egypt to the beginnings of the Industrial Revolution, were built around learning skills to make your profession. Farmers, tradesmen, and craftsmen were instructed around learning the things they would need to stay alive and to earn a living. Apprenticeships were increasingly important in this era of the medieval period. For a young person, this would start when they were children, usually closing in on their teen years. Unless it was the family business, then it may have started even earlier, possibly from the beginnings of the point where they could actually be tasked to do things, such as when you're a little older than a toddler, maybe five or six, when you could listen to instruction and fulfill small tasks before you moved on to bigger tasks as you grew up. If you were an apprentice, a master who would then take you on, if they weren't immediate family, also took on the role of parent, providing all the needs and moral guidance, while in turn the apprentice was expected to be obedient to their master at all times. These young people, usually in their early teens and even as young as seven, were more or less left at the mercy of someone they may not even know, or at least not know very well. An apprentice was not usually paid, but did receive food, lodgings, and clothing. A typical apprenticeship lasted around seven years, but that depended on the master, who realistically held all the power in this situation. This would, of course, lead to incidents of young people running away, fleeing from masters who were either abusive or were forcing them to live hard in hard conditions, or maybe just a desire to escape from a life they didn't really want any longer, or maybe never wanted. Parents and masters would then be obliged to look for the youth, but if after a year they didn't find them or weren't able to cajole them to come back, this contract of apprenticeship was then considered to be null and void. Apprentices in larger centers would find themselves joining guilds as they grew from apprentice to tradesmen, and in some cases, young men with enough talent, skill, and right circumstances would move on to practice that skill away from their former master, and of course, there was always an expectation that if they were skilled enough, they might be able to take on their own apprentice. There was, of course, a level of expectation that these apprentices would move on and be able to take their talent and create a business for themselves. But if that apprentice was never really skilled in this trade, they may never have found a way to move on or at least a way to make it work for them. Obviously, they still might have left their former master, but they may have had to find different ways of earning a living because maybe they just weren't good enough to do that. As these formalized practices continued, guilds became much more common in larger centers across Europe during the Middle Ages. They were able to amass wealth and power as they gained control at the levers of the economy. 
they would become targets for outsiders later in the Enlightenment and in the Industrial Revolution because they were seen as troubling and, of course, would be perceived as holding far too much power. These guilds, of course, would protect their tradesmen from competition and keep prices and wages at a level that was most advantageous to the guild membership. So as time went on, capitalist and Marxist philosophers examined the guilds and saw them as flawed at best and instruments of oppression at worst. In most of Wales, due to its rural nature, guilds were likely not very common, at least for the issues of facing daily life. They were mostly a factor of larger centers where they could build groups of artisans rather than small towns or villages, which just bluntly may not have more than one of those. Literacy, which had turned down sharply after the fall of the Roman Empire in Western Europe, was on the rise. By 1500, as an example, 11% of the population likely could read and write. By 1800, as a comparison, that figure is now 60%, but from humble acorns do mighty oaks grow. In the Roman imperial period, scholars think that the literacy rate could have been as high as 10% or as low as 5% in the provinces. Certainly the amount of writing aimed at all classes found in places like Pompeii and Herculaneum point to a much more educated general public. So if we were to go based on the 10%, then effectively in this era, we've now finally reached a level that was held at the Roman imperial level. The medieval era has had level of writing and reading going on, but at different times during the 1,000-year period, the amount of literacy probably likely waxed and waned as the ability of various people were able to influence things. Predominantly, the domain of literacy was found in the clergy, maybe some of the nobility and in those who could afford to create a livelihood around understanding letters. This would be a very narrow level of population up to this point. This is all about to change in very short relative amount of time, but this is why I point to this percentage issue, because you can see even at the zenith of the high Middle Ages, we're still not seeing massive amounts of literacy. There's still a level of barrier for most of the population, because in all reality, they probably don't need to read and write to get along to earn a living to this stage. That, however, is starting to change. In the Roman period, scribes were a key member of society. Because they could write, they would be able to sell their services to all levels of society for coin. Everything from legal documents to inscriptions on tombs to writing curses out for people who really wanted to get back at that old flame that did them wrong. And nothing says permanent anger like writing it in copper or iron. As the medieval period reached its zenith, the role of the scribe once again returned to state bureaucracy, which, of course, was now demanding more and more people who could understand letters and keep and write documents. Along with them, another old profession starts to rise. We mentioned previously that Owen Glyndor and his father-in-law had worked as lawyers, and eventually, in the case of Edward Hamner, as a judge. 
As legal codes continued to get codified and as clerics became more and more intertwined with politics and built up anger of powerful monarchs started to consider the church with more and more suspicion, laymen would ideally be set to profit from it because they'd have no relationship to the church, thus no preconceived notions by other people in positions of power as to why you're wanting to suddenly help good old King Henry write this document down or pass along a note to a judge or all of these different kinds of things that they would be involved in. Another change in for Europe at this time was the migration of parchment typically made from animals into the mass use of paper. The process of making paper had become much less difficult over the previous century, and in places like Italy, they were slowly moving into the mainstream. Western Europe was slow to switch to paper, which was first used by the Chinese in the second century, but it spread to the Muslim world over the succeeding centuries, and even before 1000, paper mills existed across the Middle East. As Italian merchants working the spice roads along this area it became more and more obvious and more and more common to use paper because of its obvious positives in that issue, in the fact that it could be produced on a large scale very quickly. You didn't have to kill a lot of animals to get enough parchment to be able to write anything. With paper mills, you could produce large swaths of paper. And as the paper developments got better and better and cheaper and cheaper, this would entice more and more for the Christian West to accept paper as the standard way to create documents, books, journals, notations, legal arguments, any of those kind of things would suddenly become much more necessary as time would go along, and thus paper became much more valuable for all of the things I previously mentioned. As Italian merchants continued to develop relationships, they would then bring them back. And by the 13th and 14th century, paper mills were being made in Italy and in Islamic Spain. The production of it became much more refined. It got better, which of course, as I said, meant it got cheaper. And so it then allowed more and more use of paper in all of the things that were previously mentioned. As printing presses arose in the 15th century and, of course, became much more popular in the 16th and onward, the flexibility of paper and its cheaper cost meant that it became the product of choice for this revolution in the way things were spread and the way people would learn and grow. What this meant for Welsh men who were literate was they could take advantage of this new thing. Poets now could expand from simply being at the whims of a patron to selling their services as copyists and scribes when things were a little slow or if they were between gigs and inspiration. Writing in general was making a comeback, and as more and more non-theological works were made, it allowed different classes of people to start to join the literate world from medical to historical to legal documents and books were now being produced, and along with them came the rise of more fictional works, epic poems, long-form 
songs and stories, travel logs, literally made completely fictional. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts. All of these writings for entertainment were going beyond just epic oral traditions or the old poems and were slowly growing into what would be more recognizable today in the fictional world. Another aspect of the growth in literacy was the growing numbers of women who were gaining education and specifically becoming literate. Women wrote influential texts in both religious and secular fields. Nuns were a part of that group that would carry on writing and the important role of rewriting manuscripts. It was these nuns, which were some of the first medieval females to attain this education, this literacy, and because of them, largely, we have books that exist that became more and more popular because of their use in the house. An example of the more secular type of writing was Reflections on Courtly Love and Society by Marie de France and Christine de Pizan, who continued to be studied for their glimpses of medieval society. These women, and in the example of de Pizan, argued that it was extremely important for mothers to arrange for their daughters to be taught how to read and write, that literacy was a part of the role of a woman. Some men even argued that teaching women how to write would be key to keeping them out of what they would consider to be unholy ideas, and of course, a lot of misogyny that you can imagine that would come out of these kind of arguments, both good and bad as there would be those that would, of course, proclaim that teaching women how to write was, you know, akin to teaching them devil worship. And yet there were others that were like, this will keep them out of devil worship. So you have these competing ideas about what women are largely said by men. And that, of course, is part of this entire discussion. And it's a part we don't get enough time to talk about in this era, because so often women do not take part in their own history, in the writing of this history, of the understanding of and the the commentary 
of their lives becomes muted in part because they aren't considered important to most of the story. So when you have these kind of examples that stand out so well, it does show that their influence on society is still a large one. In fact, in this era, there starts to become a tradition of giving books to women as they get married or when they're growing up called the Book of Hours, which was a religious book which had collections of psalms, of parts of the Bible, uh, as well as prayers and poetry, all aimed at trying to bring a person up to understanding Christianity in a way that was framed very quickly and very succinctly. And because of this, it's felt that that was a part of the education of women. It was to teach them how to read this particular book. And we know that this book was popular because it is one of the medieval books that we have tons of. And on top of it, it becomes a part of the reason why we know that more and more women were learning to read and gaining literacy is because some of them, especially obviously wealthy ones, in their wills would be books. So we know that they had some relationship with understanding them. And of course, as printing presses start to mass produce writing, I think more and more the population learns to read simply because they want to know what all is going on in their world, and certainly this would expand that. However, even as oral culture becomes a written one, there is still one big flaw. Welsh writing was still not at a large scale. There would be no printed Welsh book until 1546, which effectively is almost 100 years after printing presses started to be created and 50 years after they started to reach mass production levels. Handwritten Welsh documents that did exist were few and far between, and for most of the Welsh population, literacy meant English, Latin, or French, not Welsh. Welsh was neither the language of economy, legal system, or faith. It was the language of the home, at best, so because of that, Welsh would be very much a home-based oral education. This did not mean that there was no call for understanding at least some aspects of Welsh culture. From a literary perspective, it was felt that Welsh law was still practiced in some areas of the principality, even at this late date. As such, there were needs for those who could understand Welsh law and practice it, at least until the rise of the Tudors. Obviously, this would mean lawyers and judges would be trained in both English common law and Welsh law, and likely many of them were Welsh themselves, and of course, in all likelihood, Welsh law was written in Welsh, or at least in Latin. So you wouldn't necessarily have a need for English in that role. Around this time, another guild formed around poets and creative writers in the land. They formed a very protective unit, as we've said, with guilds in general, and in part, this was to protect their own positions, and in part to keep others from claiming the same title. No wet behind the ears, poverty-stricken, illiterate bard was going to take their role as preachers to the wealthy to receive and give both generosity and to proclaim the magnificent deeds of their patron. Now, if you 
wanted to do that, you needed to effectively have a license to be a poet or participate in any sort of sanctioned competition, you would have to be a member of this guild. The same was true in musical communities where this expectation of receiving some formal licensing in order to participate continued to be important. Stratification and formalization of positions in society continued to grow in the aftermath of the first powerful wave of the Black Death, where that had kind of struck at the pillars of society. Medieval feudal system and its successor in the Enlightenment would continue to rebuild that in a very formalized way. And within each community of professions, education was becoming a greater and greater player. A merchant needs to understand contracts and basic numeracy. Most nobility were becoming more intertwined with major innovation of the Middle Ages, the university. The ideas of lectures on liberal arts and science were starting to become important and become an important step on the road to achieving money, power, and influence in society. And for the noble classes, it was starting to become that basic standard that you needed. But even at the lowest level, skills were codified, valued, and changed to create leveling. In other words, you couldn't just enter this position out of nowhere, and at each step there were barriers set to entry so that you just couldn't take up practice in something without reaching a level of educated understanding effectively. Somewhere along the line, somebody was going to say, well, if you want to do this, you got to pay me or pay someone else or become an apprentice to someone and... All of these kind of strictures and barriers created a very formal and structured system, one that would stabilize society, but as this was happening, and as society was becoming more and more formalized, it seemed this education had a bit of a double-edged sword in the fact that there were more and more people unhappy after seeing what exactly it was they were missing. And as these structures and strictures started to push down people who had abilities but maybe didn't have the right connections or the right uh, master, suddenly they realized that things weren't as they were supposed to be. And this, too, would start to push and put problems on society. Combined with that, the changes that were going on within the church and the monarchy and you can see it was a beginning to be a powder keg as we reach the middle period of the 15th century and enter into the later half where you start to see massive rebellions interesting warfare religious warfare starts to kick off as the protestant revolution starts to arrive and all of this would then have massive ever-changing results on society throughout all of Europe, all of the world, one would argue, but certainly it would affect Wales no less than anywhere else. And uh, with that, I'd like to thank you for listening. I hope you're having a wonderful week. And uh, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can always reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at Welsh History Pod 
or on Facebook. You can join our group there at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. And I should also mention thank you to all of you who have signed up as patrons of this particular podcast. Your financial support is definitely appreciated. And uh, I don't consider that to be a level of entry in order to listen, obviously, but nonetheless, I do appreciate it. It does help me, and uh, I will continue to speak very, very highly of all of you who do that, because without you, I certainly wouldn't be able to keep this going quite as much as I am. Thank you, everyone, and uh, we'll catch you next time. Take care. Bye-bye. This has been a Distractions Media production. For more information, you can check out everything we do at distractionsmedia.com. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts.